Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day, folks, and welcome to season six of Heroes and Howlers, and the rest is history. That's right, we've made it to six seasons. That's right. I'm, I'm quite excited. Now, Paul, today you're taking us all the way to the Yukon. That's right, Mikey, because during the break, um, I actually got a message from an old friend of mine in Dawson City, uh, which is up there in the Yukon, right next to the Alaskan border. And it was actually the centre of the Klondike Gold Rush, which we'll come to later on in this episode. Anyway, the two of us are talking and he asked, would it be possible to do an episode on not just his part of the world, but the indigenous First Nation tribes? Okay, Paul, now this is going to be quite difficult because a lot of what we know or what we've read has been appropriated. It's like a researcher's nightmare. That's right, Mikey. When we're trying to deal with indigenous history, separating fact from fiction is probably the biggest problem. You know, there's so many traps and pitfalls that you really want to try and avoid as a historian. But at the same time, it's often the case that the only clues you've got to go on are what's being passed down from generation to generation, most likely as part of a people's oral tradition. And I suppose, you know, if we're talking North America, the classic example of this is what we know or what we think we know about one of the First Nations' greatest leaders, Hiawatha, or to try and use his own Iroquois language, Ayanawatha or Ayanawata. Mate, I've got to be honest, all I know about Hiawatha is the epic poem by, by Longfellow, The Song of Hiawatha, but it came out in the mid-19th century? Yes, exactly, and that's where the problems begin. You see, Longfellow writes his poem in 1855, and he's got all the tales of battles fought, heroic deeds, the romance with Minnehaha, but it seems a lot of the time he's either amalgamating two accounts into one, borrowing from other First Nations stories, or sometimes just plain making it up. Right, so what sort of events should he have been including? (laughs) Well, that's where our other set of issues come in. Because even if you go at this from an Indigenous point of view, those bits that we do know are vague and potentially just as unreliable. You see, for a start, we can't even say which century Iyengwatha was alive. The best we can come up with is somewhere in the 15th or 16th century of the Common Era. Right. And of course, Longfellow and his buddies, they often get grouped together as the fireside poets. They would say at the time, so many of these stories were dying out as much of the First Nations population was being wiped out. They were just trying to keep some of the stories, any of the stories, alive. And of course, don't forget, these are poets we're talking about, Mikey, and none of them claim to be historians. Okay, so you're saying judged against their contemporaries, these fireside poets, well, they're well-intentioned. Even if today we'd look back on them as, well, just another bunch of patronising old white guys. Correct. A bit like the the Sir Walter Scott and his stories about the Highlands of Scotland. And of course, once these popular culture accounts are out there and are so well known, their warped versions of events often run wild and overtake, suffocate the original. Because once they're out there, you can't get them back in the box. Precisely, which is what makes the modern historian's task so difficult. So, mate... Tell me about historical Hiawatha. Okay, what we do know is that he was one of the 
co-founders of the Iroquois Confederacy. Now, this was a grouping together of the Mohawks, the Oneida tribe, the Onondaga, the Cayuga and the Seneca. But again, that doesn't necessarily help matters because some accounts have Iyengwatha born into the Onondaga tribe, while others have him down as a Mohawk. It could even be that he was born into the Onondaga, but adopted by the Mohawks. Okay, so whereabouts on the American continent are we talking, or the North American continent? All right, so these tribes, these First Nations, they are based around Lake Huron, which is essentially upstate New York and southern Ontario. So the modern border between USA and Canada would go straight through it. But of course, in those days... tribal lands, they they crossed over, yes. Now, the story goes that early on in Hiawatha's life, his wife and his daughters are all killed by his enemy, Tadodaho, the head of a rival clan. But this only drives Hiawatha on to greater things. Now, all that stuff in Longfellow's poem about heroic deeds and battles won, that may have been a bit of extra purple prose he threw in to spice up the story. But he was a renowned orator, and it's because of his great speaking skills that he's chosen by a guy called Dakana Weeda, or the great priestmaker who's a prophet, a sort of spiritual leader amongst the tribes. He chooses Hiawatha to be his right-hand man, Because although the great peacemaker is revered by all, we're told by the sources that he does have a severe speech impediment. So what you're saying is Hiawatha becomes the spokesman for the unification of the Iroquois people. That's right. He pulls the five nations together and even his enemy, Tadadaho, who initially resists peace, Hiawatha is able to convince him, talk him round, and he promises that if Tadadaho accepts the proposal and brings his clan in to join the new peace... Tadodaho's land will always be chosen to play host to the meetings of the Grand Council. So Tadodaho accepts the great law of peace is adopted by each clan within the five tribes and the game-changing confederacy of the Iroquois is born. So really, Longfellow needn't have embellished the story at all. Although everyone likes the bit about Minnehaha. Today we're looking at North America, folks, and the disconnect between history and myth-telling. Now, we started off over in the east around Lake Huron, but now, Paula, you want to take us to your mate up in the Yukon. And if we're talking about how fiction has influenced what we've come to accept as fact, I'm assuming Jack London is going to get a mention. That's right, Maggie. We're in the last years of the 19th century. We're talking about the Klondike Gold Rush. And as you say, this is a period that's made a lasting impression on American culture, like Jack London's Call of the Wild. But the guy I want to talk about today, my hero for this episode, is an indigenous prospector by the name of Skookum Jim. Now, Skookum Jim, he's a member of the Tagish people, and traditionally they inhabited the areas around the Klondike River and the Yukon River, which is in that northwest part of Canada that borders up against Alaska. Now, the west coasts of America and Canada have already seen some pretty impressive gold strikes going all the way back to San Francisco and the 49ers. Great name for a football team. (laughs) Right. But the strike I want to talk about today was on August the 16th, 1896. Now, this is a strike that has gone down in history as another white man's gold rush. But I think the real story should centre around the parts played by the people from North America's First Nations. People like my man Skookum Jim. Now, as we were saying earlier, it's pretty hard to pin down exact dates when we're talking about Indigenous history, but it seems that Skookum Jim was probably born around 1855. He's part of the Dakhlawaidi clan, which is one of the Tagish clans in the Tagish tribe, and he's actually given at birth the Tagish name Kaish. 
which is the Tagish word for wolf. Okay, that's a pretty cool name. Now, his clan was centred around Bennett Lake, which is on the border between British Columbia and the Yukon, and his father was the clan chief. And as a family, they essentially made their living by acting as traders between the coastal Tlingit people and the inland Tagish. So during the summers, Skook and Jim would work as a packer carrying supplies to the coast, and that's how he earned his nickname Skookum, because Skookum in pioneer jargon means strongest of the strong. And it seems this Skookum Jim really did have an extraordinary strength. In fact, in one occasion, he's said to have packed 70 kilos of bacon all the way over the Chilkut Pass as part of the Canadian government survey team. 70 kilos of bacon. Now, OK, that's around about you in bacon. <laughs> exactly. I don't like to think about that, but I mean, I, mean, I get tired of carrying home two BLTs from the shop. <laughs> well, that's right, Mikey, because on average, most packers would only carry 40 or 50 kilos but this guy he was carrying 70 anyway while he's on the trail he meets up with a guy called george washington carmack who's a u.s trader and prospector the two of them fall in together and they're soon joined by skookum jim's nephew carl gooks who's gone down in history as dawson charlie quick question mate all these anglicised names, I'm guessing that's just a bit of your typical colonial prejudice, in the same way that indigenous trackers and their like over here were all made to adopt white guy names back in the day. That's right, Mikey. Yeah, Cash becomes Jim, Jim Mason, which becomes Skookum Jim, and nephew Carl Gooks, he becomes Dawson Charlie, after the city I mentioned at the top of the show, Dawson City, which becomes the hub for this particular gold rush. So as I was saying, these three men get together and the partnership's soon turning a pretty penny, trading and packing over the Chilcot Pass and also the White Pass. In fact, things go so swimmingly, it's not long before Carmack marries Skookum Jim's sister, Shaw Tlar. But by 1888, the three of them decide it's time they turn their hand to prospecting. They head up to the Yukon River without much success. But by 1896, they decided to give the Klondike River a go. And sure enough, in the middle of August, at a place that was called Rabbit Creek, it's now known as Bonanza Creek. <laughs> okay, I think I see where this is going. They discover a piece of gold so big it's the size of a dime. Ooh. Now, this bit is where it gets interesting and is the reason why I wanted to choose Skookum Jim as my hero. Right. You see, most people agree it was Skookum Jim who struck first and by rights, that should have entitled him to a, a double win, what's called the Discoverer's Claim, whereby the discoverer is entitled to stake two claims side by side before opening up the area to others. But because of that white colonial prejudice we were talking about a few minutes ago, because of the racist nature of the day, claims staked by indigenous prospectors, both in Canada and the US, at this time these claims local government officials often refused to recognise, which of course in turn meant that men like Skookum Jim couldn't rely on local law enforcement for protection against rival prospectors coming to try and muscle their way in. Sounds familiar. Right, so instead, Skookum Jim and Dawson Charlie, they have to agree to George Carmack staking the discoverer's claim and registering his action with the mounted police representative in the region. And Jim and Charlie had to settle to the claims on either side. But that didn't work out too shabbily, though, did it? No, fortunately, there was so much gold to be had from all three claims that between 1896 and 1900, the three men found nuggets to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. Klondike, here we come. <laughs> well, that's right. As you can imagine, news spread pretty quickly. And with the press in nearby Seattle pumping the story for all it's worth, you soon had a mass stampede on your hands. In fact, you soon had over 100,000 potential prospectors packing their bags and heading north. 
And one of those prospectors is my howler for this story, and another one where the myth and the history often gets confused. It's a guy called Friedrich Trumpf. Okay, I think we know where this is going. Now, he was a 16-year-old German who migrated from Germany, most probably to avoid conscription, arrives in America in 1885. Now, by the 1890s, he changed his name to, yeah, Fred Trump. And he was investing in Seattle real estate, sort of subletting, particularly in the rough part of town, just down by the wharves. It was known as the Lava Beds, also known as the Tenderloin, the Line, and even Skid Row. <laughs> he subleased a storefront restaurant called Poodle Dog. Yeah, I know. Strange name. Which served booze and food and advertised, and this is in quotes, private rooms for ladies. Ah. Now, this is where we have to make a distinction between the myth and the history. Trump was never actually a pimp. There were brothels in the area, but they were mostly run by women. He did, however, refrain from asking uncomfortable questions, turning a blind eye to such vices as illegal gambling, opium smoking, and obviously prostitution. Now, when gold fever gripped the country in 1893, he left Seattle, didn't go up to the Yukon. He moved to nearby Monte Cristo in Washington State, and he filed a mining claim. But he never actually opened a mine. He opened another, in quotes, restaurant on the land. But there is evidence that by 1896, he'd been using surrogates to buy up land around the Yukon. So he's heard things are happening up there. Mm. There were a few dubious land deals, and actually looked for a brief period that Trump would not realise his dream of being wealthy. In fact, there was one expedition he was part of, and he jointly funded. It came unstuck when the ship's captain accidentally ran the schooner aground just off Chirikoff Island. Mm. It's in the Gulf of Alaska. But they were marooned for 40 days, and until a rescue boat could reach them, five of them died of exposure. But Trump survived. It's, it's a family trait. By 1899, and this is where it gets interesting, he and a partner, a guy called Ernest Levin, were running the Arctic restaurant on Lake Bennett mm. on the Yukon Rail Route. Hang on, Lake Bennett, that's where Skookum Jim was born. There you go, mate, small world. Now, a letter to the Yukon Sun newspapers from April 17th, 1900, mm. and it says... I would advise respectable women travelling alone or with an escort to be careful in the selection of hotels at Bennett, as they are liable to hear that which would be repugnant to their feelings and uttered too by the depraved of their own sex. Once again, we've got to point out it's the same business plan as Seattle. Fred Trump is not a pimp. He's just a businessman <laughs> who doesn't ask too many questions. Anyway... Trump and Levin actually moved their establishment to the much bigger city of Whitehorse. Mm. And, in fact, they actually moved the whole thing by barge. It was a massive success. In fact, it boasted the largest brand-new steel cooking range in the Yukon. They were serving thousands of meals a day and, once again, not asking too many questions about who was renting the rooms and for what. Mm. Now, Trump leaves for San Francisco and he leaves Levin in charge. And within months, there are scandalous newspaper articles about Levin's behaviour. Trump eventually sells out his share in the White Horse restaurant, Nin, as it was then known. Levin gets arrested for public drunkenness and thrown in jail. But by this stage, Trump's already sold out. But here's the other thing too. Random right at this time, the Mounties are starting to really crack down in that area. Mm. And they are really cracking down on gambling, liquor sales and prostitution, which was pretty much a fair amount of the inn's business. Anyway, the White Horse Inn, along with many other establishments, burned down in the White Horse Fire of 1905. But Fred Trump, being Fred Trump, he's escaped all these problems. In fact, he's already gone back to Kalstadt in Germany. 
He's gotten married in Germany and been thrown back out by the German government because he was a draft dodger all those years ago. By this stage, he's back in New York in 1905. He's working as a barber, and he even uses some of his savings from the Yukon to open a barber shop in Wall Street in Manhattan. Ah. But the next year, he used more of his Yukon money to invest in real estate on Jamaica Avenue in the southwest section of Queens. And, well, Paulie, the rest is history. All right, so we're talking about the Yukon Gold Rush. But really what we're talking about, Mikey, is how when you've got these big, famous stories, it's so hard to separate the fact from the fiction. Exactly. And in many ways, the situation is made worse because there are some people who are deliberately trying to muddy the waters. We mentioned before about the press and how they made the big story about all the gold on board the ships coming down from the Yukon. And these same pressmen, they were actually deliberately encouraged by the politicians because they, of course, were so desperate for more and more people to emigrate from the East Coast to the West. And when Seattle becomes a real city. That's right. And you've got to remember, this is the golden age for newspapers, isn't it? Finally, they've got the photos to go with their stories. Finally, scoops can be picked up around the world. All these guys want are human interest stories. And of course, gold rush, gold fever, strike it rich from a hole in the ground. That's always going to be one of the best front space splashes you can get. But we shouldn't necessarily lay all the blame at the press room door because really it's also very much tied in to the creation of the North American popular culture. Because just as every newspaper editor wants a scoop, so writers and singers and poets, they're looking for a story to write about. Aha! Uh-huh. This must be about the time when my schoolboy read Jack London's Call of the Wild comes in. 1903, that's right, Mikey. And then you've got, yeah, you've got poets like Robert W. Service, who's actually from Dawson City. He's got his 1908 Songs of a Sourdough, which is one of the best-selling poetry collections of the early 20th century anywhere in the English-speaking world. But of course, just like Jack London's Call of the Wild, it's deliberately presenting a romanticised version of events. And in fact, that version of events is still being peddled by the tourist boards today in terms of the, you know, come to the Yukon, pan for gold, you too can be a millionaire. Where in actual fact, the reality was very different. You know, out of that original 100,000 prospectors that we were talking about before the break, stampeding up the Yukon River, probably only 15 or 20,000 of them got to actually stake a claim. They reckon less than 4,000 struck gold and only a few hundred ever became rich. In fact, a lot of them arrived after 1899, by which time the gold had all run out and they'd arrived too late. Okay, so they're too late for the gold in the ground. But they're not too late to create myths about it. That's right. And those myths and legends that get written into popular culture, they're the ones that have gone down in history, Mm -hmm. if you like, and suddenly it's Hiawatha all over again. Okay, Paulie, as historians, well, you are, it is our job to separate the myth from the facts. So so what actually happened to Skookum Jim? Well, in many ways, Mikey, his story mirrors the story of all First Nation peoples across the continent. In the short term, yes, seemingly they did prosper, you know, as guides and packers or selling supplies to the new European settlers. But in the long term, they're always going to suffer. As we said, all three members of the partnership made millions of dollars from the claims that they struck in the Klondike. So much so, by 1898, Skookum Jims built this large, ornately furnished house in Carcross for himself and his family. But in many ways, that creates a lot more problems than it solves. By 1904, he's developed a drinking problem. His marriage has fallen apart. But the reason why I've chosen him to be our hero 
today, Mike, is in 1905, he realised the dangers he was in. Because in that year, he creates the Daisy Mason Trust. Daisy being his daughter, and Mason being the English name which he'd given himself when he'd staked his claim. So what did this trust do, mate? Well, the idea was that if he put all his money in this trust, that would protect both himself and his family. Because one of the biggest problems he had wasn't just spending money on alcohol, but also he had this tendency just to give large gifts away to anyone who asked. For example, in 1912, he gives the largest party ever seen in the region as part of his nephew Dawson Charlie's funeral. But by setting up this trust, like I said, he protects himself. and He also provides for his daughter's education so that when he dies in 1916, all that money is safely transferred over to his daughter, Daisy. And when she dies in 1938, it becomes a charitable trust and all that money is used to the benefit of needy indigenous peoples in the Yukon. In fact, you mentioned Whitehorse before, Mikey, in your Fred Trump story. Well, if you go to Whitehorse today, you'll see the Skookum Jim Friendship Centre, which was all built and paid for by money which originated from when Skookum Jim struck gold in 1896. Well, that's a much better legacy than the Trumps. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right. And always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. Well, next week, I'm going to make an explosive connection between the Brady Bunch and the French Revolution. Mm-hmm.